First Peter one. First Peter chapter one. All right, let's do the smart thing. Let's pray again real quick. Uh, Lord, we just come to you now, and as always, let's pray. Your spirit would teach. We would listen, go before all things, and we just stop and say thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for the time to be here tonight in your name. Amen. Now, kind of like this. I know it's been a while since we've been in First Peter. Last week, Richard filled in, um, did a uh, teaching on temptation, did a good job with that. And then the week before that was Excellent Wednesday, and Jonathan taught that one. So it's been a while since we've been here in First Peter. So I'm sure you don't remember, so I'm not even going to assume that you do. But we left off right around verse 7, and we left off talking about trials and tribulations. So tough subject, tough thing to chew on. And so now back in ch- verse 8, which we pick up, it's a little more lighthearted, and I like that. Because the first thing we get to talk about in verse 8 is this. Look at the last words in verse 7. Jesus Christ, now verse 8, whom, in, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully to prophesize of the grace that would come to you. So I like this one tonight because it's all about Jesus and salvation. Can't go wrong with that. With that being said, if you look there at verse 8, there's three things about Jesus that are vital. Three words. First word that you see in verse 8 is you love him. Second word you see there in verse 8 is that you believe in him. And the last word you see in verse 8 is that you get to rejoice about all that stuff. So you love him, you believe in him, and then you get to rejoice. Now here's the problem that we run into in Christianity and the world. We want to skip the first two and go right to the last one. We just want to rejoice. The only way you get to rejoice is if you love the Lord and if you believe in the Lord. If you don't have that relationship with the Lord, you got nothing to rejoice about. I have people call me all the time that aren't involved in church, not involved with God. They come into my office, they call me. Their life is falling apart, and they're looking for some simple, quick answer to bring them joy. Well, that simple, quick answer is found in Jesus Christ. The problem is they don't want Jesus Christ. They want something else. I don't know how to give anybody joy unless it comes through Jesus. I don't know how to do that. And I've come to the conclusion after the years I've been on here as a pastor, the best thing I can do is just tell you about the Lord. And that's all I can do. Because when you know the Lord and you love the Lord and then you believe in the Lord, then you finally have joy. Let's just be honest. I've been in spots in my Christian walk where I'm not putting God first. My belief in the Lord is not strong. And then I walk around wondering why I don't have much joy in life. I walk around wondering why I'm a grump. And I walk around wondering why I'm getting bitter and angry at everybody. Then I stop and I look. Spiritually speaking, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not loving the Lord like I should. I'm not believing in the Lord like I should. So therefore, I don't have joy. And I sit there and I wonder, why don't I have that? So let's talk about these things. First thing you need to do is love the Lord. Now, this is a pretty simple, straightforward one, right? You're supposed to love the Lord. In fact, when they came to Jesus and asked him what the greatest commandment was, what did they say? You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. That is the key core of Jewish prayers. Every morning and every evening, they pray over Deuteronomy 6, 5, which you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the key thing. Now, that's pretty simple and straightforward, right? We're supposed to love the Lord. We can move past that point, but here's the problem. That phrase, love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, that is an all-encompassing love. That is a love that is emotional, that's a love that's internal, and that's a love that's intellectual. My whole being loves the Lord. That is not as simple as it sounds. We use this word of love, and we make this joke a lot. I always make the joke, I love my wife, I love my dog, and I love chicken McNuggets. Obviously, they're all different. I love chicken McNuggets, but I don't love them emotionally. I'm not like crying as I'm chewing them up. I don't have that heartfelt attachment to them. Intellectually, I just like them, I think. I don't know. I love my dog. I don't love my dog eternally. You know what's going to happen when my dog dies? 
I'm going to go get another dog. Don't tell the dog that. I don't love him eternally. I love the Lord emotionally. He is the most important thing in my life. I love the Lord eternally. I'm going to spend all of eternally with him. And then with my mind, I have chosen to follow him. Just like that song we sang tonight, I will follow. I chose to. So it's an emotional, eternal, and intellectual. When you have that love, now you can move on to the next one. But the truth of the matter is, we usually don't get that love down. We say it all the time, oh, I love the Lord. And do you really love him with every ounce of your being? Do you really love him completely? A lot of us have this little love relationship with God where I'm glad he's there when I need him and I'll go visit him every now and then on a Sunday morning and maybe every now and then I'll crack my Bible. No, when you love him completely, you just you want to be around him all the time. I remember when I first got saved, I couldn't wait, couldn't wait for devotions. I mean, I, I would set the alarm so early just to get up because you just wanted to spend that time with God. I just remember that. I remember wanting to be at church so bad. I, I've shared this story with you before. We were in the process of moving. I got saved when I was a junior in high school, and it was my junior year going to my senior, and we were in the process of moving from our house to, to my grandmother's place, and um, one of my sisters was supposed to bring the car back, so that way I could get to church on time. She didn't get back in time. I wanted to go to church so bad, so I got out my old bicycle that had a flat tire, and I rode that bike two miles over to my grandparents' house because I knew my dad's truck was there, so I could get in dad's truck and come to church. And I remember that time, Wednesday night service, just like now, was only an hour long, and I got there, and I was about 20, 25 minutes late, but I, was just, I just had to be there. I couldn't miss anything. Nowadays, it's like, yeah, you know, it's not that big a deal. But what happened to that, that passion? Well, problem is, I think sometimes when we don't love him completely, it just like any type of marriage or relationship. It just starts to dissipate. You get too familiar with your spouse. You get too familiar with relationships. And next thing you know, you're not putting the time and effort into them. Somebody made a great comment to me recently, and they were having a little bit of marriage difficulties. And he made the comment, and I just, it just really hit me. This idea of, he goes, I want my focus to be my wife again. I thought, how neat is that? This is somebody that's after years of marriage and kids, and says, my focus is no longer my wife. Boy, that's really simple. We've all been in that spot. Don and I talk about this all the time. We'll be married 16 years, you know, five kids in. It's easy to start thinking past that. It's like, no, you want your focus to be your spouse. I want my focus to be the Lord. Love him completely with all my heart, my soul, my mind. Once I have that, I can move to the next one. Let's talk about that next one. Can you turn to Mark 5, please? Let's talk about belief. Mark 5. Now, i got to share this with you real quick, full disclosure. So I was really excited about this message, and I was preparing this, and I was working through this. And so I've been gone. I missed uh, Sunday and Wednesday because of the baby. So I listened to Wednesday's message first about temptation. thought Rich did an excellent job on that. And so I was working on the message today, got the message done. I had some time before church here. So I started listening to a Sunday message on uh, Jesus the Healer. So we're about one minute into the message. I'm listening to online. And he makes this comment about how he's going to teach this morning on two miracles. Okay, this is cool. And he's going to teach on a on the way to do a miracle, Jesus does another miracle. And I thought, wait a second, because that's what I'm teaching on tonight. And because I'm just doing it in Mark 5, and he did it in Luke 7. So... I've only listened to the first eight minutes of his message. So if all these points sound like I've stole it from Rich, I did not steal it from Rich. I just want to let you know that. And how many of you were here Sunday? Does anybody even remember what he said? No? See, you guys don't even remember what he said. So this is going to sound brand new to you anyway. So I'm not going to go into detail like his. He's doing a great job eight minutes into it. He may really screw up the last 16 minutes of it, but the first eight minutes of it is really good. It seems like we're taking it from two different angles here. Because I want to talk about the believe part. Remember our three words there. Our three words that we're talking about in verse 8. Is you have to love Jesus Christ, you believe in Jesus Christ, and then you finally have joy. So we've covered the love part, and now we're talking about the believe part. 
The verse I want to focus on, and here's the key thing when it comes about this, is this idea of believing. Now, the key verse, if you look right here, is uh, verse 36. He says, do not be afraid, only believe. Now, since most of you were here Sunday, I'm not going to go into the whole detail like I was planning on doing it. So really, you know the story. What happens is there's a guy by the name of Jairus that comes and his daughter is dying. Verse 23, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. Like I said, Rich talked about this Sunday and he did a great job there. He was talking about Maddie being age 12 and just I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom the emotion of what this man was going through knowing his daughter was dying and he was down to one last ditch attempt and that was get Jesus. So he, he gets Jesus. He gets Christ's attention. Verse 24, Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And this is where Rich has been talking about this. This woman with the issue of blood, she comes, she touches Jesus and amazingly she is healed. Now, as she is amazingly healed, they have this great conversation. Verse 30, who touched me? The disciples say, what are you talking about? Who touched you? There's everybody around. He says, somebody touched me. I think in one of the Gospels it says, I felt the power go out. Somebody touched me. So he has this conversation with her in verse 33. The woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she was found out, came and fell down before him, and he told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And, and here's the key, verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Wow. Well, anybody with kids, verse 35, that's one of the most heartbreaking passages you could ever imagine. Now, I, I look at this passage. And part of me, this guy Jairus, you know, obviously, what's going through his mind at this time? <laughs> he was so close, so close. I mean, so close to having God himself be at his house and just, just take care of his daughter just like that. So close. What was going through his mind? I don't know. I can tell you what would be going through my mind. I'd be ticked at that woman. I'd be so mad at that woman that she stepped in and she took Jesus from me where my kid was dying, she had this issue of blood. Fine, he had the issue of blood. Let Jesus go heal my daughter real quick and then come back and heal you, okay? We're talking life and death here. Now, we obviously don't have that information how Jairus responded. We can only assume. I don't know. What a, what a, what a difficult thing to be in for Jairus to sit here and wait. Oh my goodness, have you ever been in a position like that of waiting? Have you ever had to take somebody to the emergency room and you're just sitting there waiting and you see all these people going before you? I, I had to take somebody one time to the emergency room and, and they were obviously in pretty rough shape there. And as we're sitting there waiting in the emergency and we watch these other people go in and I remember this person looking at me saying, what do they have? Because they don't look like they're hurting like I am and you don't know what's going on. Here Jairus allows this conversation to happen. I mean, if I was Jairus where Jesus said, who touched my clothes, I would say in verse 30, Jesus, it doesn't matter, come on, come, come on. Who touched you? It doesn't matter who touched you, just come on. So as he's speaking, his daughter dies, he hears the word. Look at it, and this is what Jesus says, do not be afraid, only believe. Now that's that phrase there, believe. Now this is an amazing example of, of faith. Because now Jairus willfully goes back to his house. And as I'm sure Rich talked about there in verse 38, you got the paid mourners and weepers there. Verse 39, Jesus says, Why make this commotion? Weep, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 40, you ridiculed him. If you haven't experienced it yet, you know you're going to be mocked for being a Christian. I mean, you know that. It's, an, it's just a fact. You're going to be mocked for being a Christian. And as you're mocked, it may be very lighthearted mocking. Obviously, here in America, for the most part, we don't deal with the serious stuff. I hear the reports. You hear what happens in other parts of the world where people are not mocked for their faith or martyred for their faith. You may have somebody at work that makes fun of you. Are you praying to your invisible God again? Oh, yeah, you're going to do that? You're going to pray going to church? Why are you doing that? That little bit of ridicule. 
So here they come, obviously. They make this commotion, weeping. The child is not dead, but sleeping. They ridiculed him. They take him in there, and they have this great thing in verse 41. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they are overcome with great amazement. Now, the key thing of this passage, once again, is verse 36. Do not be afraid, only believe. They didn't get the joy of her being resurrected until he believed. Once again, remember our three points. You love him, you believe in him, and then you get to rejoice. You can't skip to point three. It doesn't work that way. If you're going through a difficult time right now and you're looking for joy, you have to go back to step one. Am I loving the Lord with my heart, my soul, and mind? Okay, boom, I'm doing that. Next one, am I believing? And believing is not just saying, I believe in God. Believing is Jairus. The daughter is dead. I still want Jesus to come to my house because I know he can do something. That's amazing belief. Amazing belief. I had a situation happen this week. I was catching up from some texts and emails from last week, and somebody uh, texted me or email about a situation. And it it was an amazing answered prayer. And years, years of answered prayer finally happened. And at that time, I stopped and I thought, wow, Lord, you did it. You you really did it. And the truth of the matter in my heart, I thought, Lord, I gave up on that. Have you ever done that? Maybe you won't admit it, but have you ever given up? You pray really hard for this person to be saved, and you pray for it for months and six months and a year. Then after a while, you just kind of say, fine. You find out this person gets saved. Or you pray for that situation that's so heartbreaking for that other person. You pray and pray, and they kind of forget about it. See, this is that phrase of believing, as I'm not going to give up faith, because the Lord still does it. The rejoicing comes after you have the love, after you have the belief, and then they have the rejoicing. So, Jairus, after he believed, he had the rejoicing. Back here in First Peter that we're talking about, this idea of salvation. When you love Christ, when you believe in Christ, then you get to rejoice in Christ, and the rejoicing is the salvation of your soul. So before we move on to the next point here real quick, anybody have any quick questions, comments about this before we move on? I just want to share this thought with you real quick. Um, I heard a pastor make this comment one time, and I just want to build on it a little bit. He said, do you ever think that the Lord obviously allowed this to happen with Jairus? Because by Jairus seeing this woman with the issue of blood being healed, that helped his faith? That Jairus just saw this woman get healed? We have have no indications, as far as I know in the Gospels, that Jairus lost it. That he just all of a sudden hit his knees and said, it's no reason to come to my daughter anymore, she's dead. This pastor made a comment one time, he goes, do you ever think that by Jairus immediately seeing this miracle, he never once lost faith? That the Lord allowed that miracle to happen to say, see, if I can heal this woman... The death of your daughter is not past me in any way whatsoever. The reason I bring this up is this happens a lot. I'll be counseling somebody, and they're going through a difficult time, and I know they're going through a difficult time. And I've had people say this to me before. I'll say something, listen, I know what you're going through. I I hear what you're going through. I don't fully get it because I haven't been in your spot, but I've seen other people go through the same thing, and this is what the Lord did. I can remember sometimes people in frustration saying, I don't care about that. I don't care that someone else went through this and the Lord got him out of it. What about me? And I stop and I think, wait a second. Part of the reason why we share these testimonies is so that way when you know that somebody else has gone through it, you can say, listen, if God got them through it, God can get me through it. So just like the woman with the issue of blood, if you're facing something physical here and you've been going on and on for years about it, I heard Richard mention in the message there, being tormented by doctors, so is this woman. If God took care of her, she can take care of, take care of you. Same thing. Sometimes by hearing those testimonies, it helps us realize the Lord can still do stuff. And that's what happened here. So we rejoice. We love him. We believe. We rejoice. What do we rejoice in? Verse 9, the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. 
And then verse 10 of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. I'm going to share this with you, and this will destroy this word for you for the rest of your life, but you need to know it. That word search in verse 10, you know what that word literally means? It literally means a dog out in the yard sniffing under everything. That's what it literally means. That idea of searching. If you have a dog, you know what they're like. They just go nuts when they get that. That's that idea that these Old Testament prophets, verse 10, were so fascinated with this concept of salvation that they just were searching and inquiring. They got to prophesy about it, but they never got to experience it. See, sometimes we look back at these Old Testament prophets like, wow, Elijah, he got to call fire down from heaven. Elisha, you know, he was raising people from the dead. You know, Isaiah did this and Jeremiah did that. But you know what? They never got to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross. We got that. And see, that's what they were excited about. And the truth of the matter is, we don't realize how big of a deal it is that we get to walk in the age of grace. We don't get how big of a deal it is that we get to walk in the blood of Jesus. We don't. Last year when we were going through the um, sacrifices in Leviticus, we kept talking about how if we could go back in time for one sacrifice, see the blood, the gore, the death of all those things that were happening, it would totally change our Old Testament perspective. I run into some Christians every now and then that they just think the Old Testament is so neat. Wouldn't you want to live back there? No, no. You know how many animals I would have killed? No, I don't want to live back in there. All those cleanliness standards, I want grace. I want to eat a pork chop. I don't want to live back in the Old Testament. I want to walk in grace. And I think what happens is, this is what Peter is trying to say here. He goes, guys, verse 9, you're saved. Rejoice in that. Verse 10, the prophets, that's all they talked about was this idea of being saved. Do you realize, if you want to see a fulfilled prophecy, just go look in the mirror. Because you being saved is a fulfilled prophecy. That's an amazing thing. So you are a walking, fulfilled prophecy. But the problem is, we've gotten so familiar with it, we lose the impact of what that means. See, you've got to put the full context of what we've been talking about here. Go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, this idea of trials. What Peter was trying to say earlier is that you have to have faith that your trial will end. You have to have faith. That's what we talked about three weeks ago. Your trial will end. Your trial may not end to your physical death, but it won't end. You will not take trials and tribulations into eternity. You won't. So your trial will end. You have to have faith. Well, you also have to have faith that you're saved. I've never seen salvation. I've seen the fruit of salvation. I've been there when people have gotten saved. I remember when I got saved, I didn't have angels. I didn't have lights appear. I didn't have these drop-dead moments. I didn't. But I've seen salvation, but not in that idea of like, well, that's what salvation looks like. It's faith. We believe it. I've never seen heaven. I've never seen Jesus. I've never seen the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. But I believe in faith that those things are there. And that's the point that Peter is trying to say here is, do you have faith that that stuff is there? You have to have faith that the trial will end. You have to have faith that you have salvation up in heaven. It's a fulfilled prophecy. So these Old Testament prophets in verse 10, they wanted to know about this. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. You ever stop and think about that? Angels have access to God, heaven. Angels got to announce the birth of the Messiah. We just got done studying Revelation. Angels have a key role in end times prophecy. 
But you know what really trips the trigger of an angel? Verse 12. They want to know about salvation. That's something that we have that they don't. Now, it's not a competition. That's something that they don't have. This idea of desiring to look into what does it mean to be saved. That's how big of a deal your walk with Christ is. Now, you don't answer this, but just stop and think to yourself for a second. Has your salvation experience with Jesus become just familiarity? You're saved. I was just telling someone yesterday on the phone, yeah, I've been saved for 19 years. I mean, just kind of like off the top of my head. I, you know, I've been saved for 19 years. And you stop and you think about that. Wait a second. Wow. 19 years walking with Jesus. 19 years the Holy Spirit living inside of me. 19 years to have opportunities to serve the Lord, study the Word, to, to, to impact people for eternity. Boy, God, help me to never take that for granted. Because what happens here, Old Testament prophets, verse 10, man, there are dogs sniffing around for it. Verse 11, they were so excited about this, searching what manner of time this would happen. Verse 12, they were so pumped about it that the angels even are excited about it. What do we do down here on earth? At 9.45 on a Sunday, we're saying, Honey, have you seen my Bible? I haven't seen my Bible. You know, we just take things for granted so much. God help us to, to really see the full picture. And I'm not saying this to kick anybody. I'm not saying this to pick on anybody. It goes back to our first thing we talked about tonight, that idea of love in verse 8. To love Him fully with your heart, your soul, your mind, emotionally, eternally, intellectually. My whole being loves the Lord. So therefore, since my whole being loves the Lord, verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, gird up your loins. Now, we don't use that too much. What we say today is roll up your sleeves. Back during Old Testament times when they got ready to work, you know, the men wore their little things down to their ankles so they would pick them up, make them a little higher. They would take their rope and they'd put their, um, put their robe into the rope so therefore they could go out and work and that wouldn't get in the way. So what we do today is we say we're going to roll up our sleeves. So therefore, since we know, put the full thing together now, we know that our trials will end, verses 5, 6, and 7, Therefore, since we know we have joy, verse 8, through Jesus Christ, therefore, since we know, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, that we have salvation through Jesus Christ, therefore, verse 13, get to work. That's what it's saying. Do something. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Your whole life is focused solely on Christ. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize the only thing that matters is, are you saved or are you not saved? That, that is the only thing that matters. And when we have that mindset, verse 13, I can gird up and say, let's get to work on this thing. It really makes a difference now when you look at the whole scheme of eternity. That thing you're worrying about tomorrow, probably not that big a deal. Gird up your loins and get out there and serve the Lord in all ways and all things. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments here before we move on? John. Yeah. And actually, if I remember correctly, that um, it doesn't say gird up his loins. It says something good there too. What's it say? So something about be ready to work or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I like that translation there, of that idea of, of seeing the full picture. Because what happens is, we don't have time to get into it tonight, but that idea of my translation says, uh, be sober. Because it takes us then to the next part here, at verses 14 onward, it talks about be holy as I am holy, verse 16. Because the point is, what it's trying to say is, okay, now that you have Christ, go out there and live the life. I mean, my goodness, we have a lot of people that have talk it, but we don't have enough people that walk it. And that's what he's trying to say here is, do you have that thing? Are you truly ready to get out there and live and work for the Lord and all that you say and all that you do? I, I tell you, it's a really sobering message to really stop and say, let's look at the whole, whole scheme of eternity here. Because if you're a lot like me, we really get worked up on little tiny things. They don't matter in the whole scheme of eternity. God help us to see the big picture. Anybody else have any final things I want to say here before we get ready to close up? So, what I took out of this message was this. 
Verse 8, it's that simple. Lord, I want to love you fully. I want to believe in you wholeheartedly. Jairus, what an example of faith. And lastly, then I taste the joy. If you're not tasting much joy in life right now, go back to step one. Are you loving God fully? Are you believing in him completely? Once you know those things, you have the joy of salvation, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, where you realize how big of a deal it is that you're saved. If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, and the truth is the idea of being saved has kind of become ho-hum to you, go back to step one. One of the things I always tell people in marriage counseling is when they come in and they're going through difficult times, I say, when's the last time you fell in love with your spouse? And when's the last time you looked at your spouse and you thought, oh my goodness, I just love this person completely. It's been a while, you need to go back to step one. You've got to fall in love with your spouse again. Same thing with the Lord. When's the last time you're excited about Jesus? When's the last time you started getting excited thinking, I may have an opportunity to share Christ with this person because I can see where the conversation's going? When's the last time you thought, oh my goodness, I just read that passage and that was, that was mind-blowing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark that. I'm going to underline that passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell somebody about that. When's the last time you had a time of prayer where you really thought, wow, Lord, I, 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 I was with you on this one. You and I were in agreement on those type of things. And I'm not saying you're chasing feelings and emotions. What I'm saying is you see the big picture of what it means to be walking with the Lord, something that's so vital that at the end of verse 12, angels desire to look into it. They want it. When you see that, then you go to verse 13 and you say, yep, I'm ready to roll up the sleeves. I'm going to get to work. I want to do something for you, Lord. I'm going to get out there and serve you and love you in whatever capacity and whatever way I can. So that ends us right there in verse 13. Once we get into verse 14, we're going to take that concept of working for him, self-control, sobering, and then it goes on to the next passage there, that idea of living for him, living a pure life in a very impure world. So let's close up with prayer, and we'll let you guys all go. Heavenly Father, just help us to never become complacent and our faith and our walk with you. Lord, forgive us for that. And uh, Lord, we desire to work for you. We desire to serve you. We want to love you completely, believe in you wholeheartedly, and just taste the joy that you bring. We lift this up in your name. Amen.